Um, Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. My life has been a confirmation of that time and time again, just not in the ways that you might imagine. I stumbled many, many times, but I always came back to what I knew to be the truth. Let me tell you just a little bit about my family. I was the youngest of two daughters born to my mother, Diana, and my Air Force father, Peter. My father was stationed in South Carolina shortly after my sister's birth in 1974, and so I was born a sweet Southern belle in, in 1975. My mother and father were not together for very long. They divorced before I was two years old, and my mother soon married the man I called dad, Ricky Caldwell, who happened to be my father's best friend. Before I was old enough to remember, we moved to Florida into the house where I grew up until I was eight, 14. This was my personal hell. Ricky was a very abusive man in every sense of the word. He, uh, my parents smoked marijuana pretty much every day after he came home from work, and he would beat my mother up. I learned at about seven years old what it felt like to be thrown across the room into the closet for stopping the fighting and trying to protect my mother. That year I ran away, trying to escape the horror that I watched and felt day by day, only to be picked up and escorted back by the police, too afraid to say anything. Several times in my childhood, I was severely beaten by my father, my stepfather, excuse me. Once for simply forgetting to put a trash bag into the trash can, I was pushed to the floor and kicked in the chest and the stomach repeatedly and then had to get up and pretend like everything was fine. As, as a pre-adolescent, I became the target of sexual abuse. I was conditioned constantly, reminded that it would kill my mother if she found out and that our family would be broken. At 12 years old in my Christmas stocking, there was a Playgirl magazine. My stepfather felt like it was his job to show us how to be good women. After years of abuse from my stepfather and emotional neglect from my mother, I was trapped. I tried to run away again as an early teen, but again was picked up again by the police and taken home, terrified of what would happen when I showed up. While I don't remember anything much good from my childhood, there were always dogs, oodles of dogs. Okay, but this one was my best friend. Sydney went everywhere with me. He sat with me when I cried, and he even took me to the lake to sit and paint or write. But in sixth grade, I woke up one morning to Sydney laying dead. I was devastated. He wasn't even that old. I no longer cared about my life. I really felt like I didn't matter to anyone. I became sexually active at 14 years old, always searching for ways to escape my pain I knew I was worthless. Throughout my childhood, I felt pretty alone. My sister was almost two years older, but always seemed to have a busy and amazing life outside of our house. She seemed very social, always had something to do and somewhere to be. In 1990, I was in eighth grade and my sister was in 10th, and she spent much of her time with her boyfriend. At some point, she finally told him about the things that my stepfather had been trying to do to her. She had no idea anything had happened to me. Soon, she also told my mother, out of obligation, I guess. My mother asked me about a few things, and I told her 
what I could. She left the house angry, and not knowing how to process all of this, she left me and my sister alone with my stepfather. Oh, the list of things that I have to put on my inventory is long. <laughs> Over the next week or two, I didn't know what to do. My mother didn't know what to do. She was angry, but she felt very trapped. I lived in fear each and every day. My sister's boyfriend, however, he told his mother, who called the guidance counselor, who in turn called my guidance counselor. And that day was all a blur. They called me into the guidance office and started asking me questions. And by the time they finished, the police were there. They told me I shouldn't ride the bus home and asked if I could have, if I could spend the afternoon with a friend. The police went to pick up my stepfather um, for questioning. He had been smoking marijuana all afternoon, conveniently. So he readily admitted to all the horrible things that he had been doing and immediately went to jail. I was then escorted home. Within a week, we moved out of the house we'd been living in for most of my childhood and into my stepfather's best friend's house. Crazy pattern, I know. My mother went into a deep, deep depression and stayed in bed on most days. My mother and stepfather divorced and we stayed with Mike. My high school years were a mess. I moved from one town to another. My mother was emotionally unavailable. My new father figure had no experience with kids, much less teenagers, and my sister was always gone. I remember after moving, I asked my mother about something and was disrespectful to her when she didn't give the answer that I was looking for. Mike heard my attitude and started yelling at me from rooms away. So I turned and walked out of the house trying to get away from him. He followed me out the door, fingers shaking furiously and screaming while he chased me around the van in the driveway. Here I was at 14 years old. My family was ripped apart because of me. My mother was laying in bed, unable to function because of me. And now I was being screamed at by yet another man. I was terrified. In fall of 1990, I met, who is still, even 30 years later, my best friend, Jackie. Throughout high school, I spent many weekends at her house, and her parents became my parents. They truly loved me deeper than I had ever known. They even took me to church with them from time to time. And ninth grade seemed all right. I had friends. I even had a boyfriend who I really thought was the one, you know, that one. When you're young, you'd have no idea. <laughs> Then, at the end of the ninth grade year, my mother and Mike announced that we were moving to Maine. That boyfriend broke my heart, and off we went. Shortly after we arrived to Maine, Mike got a phone call from family saying that his father was very ill and he needed to return to Florida. So he and my mother did just that, leaving me and my sister in the care of our grandparents, but in our own apartment above them. I spent the whole summer going to church with my grandmother. She worked at a church, so she was there every day. I enjoyed spending time with my grandmother and I wanted so desperately to have a better life. At the end of the summer, my parents came back and said we would be moving back to Florida. My sister decided to marry the guy across the way. And the very next day, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church but the importance of my sister marrying totally eclipsed my baptism, leaving me feeling completely invisible. Leaving my sister behind, we moved back to Florida and I went back to the same high school. Soon enough, I fell in with the wrong crowd at school. 
I longed to matter to someone, to anyone. I became suicidal and promiscuous, just longing for someone to care. At 15, I was raped by the friend of a friend. And in some ways, I felt like I deserved it. In other ways, I just didn't care anymore. So I stayed silent. I went on like everything was normal. I excelled in school. It was the one thing I felt I did really, really well. I even got into advanced placement and honors classes and would have been nominated for a scholarship had I stayed in school. But outside of school, I found ways to mess up my life even more. I found myself pregnant at 17 years old and made one of the decisions that I regret most to this day. I got an abortion and I continued living life as if nothing had happened. I spent years, years hating myself for this one thing. I turned 18 just months into my senior year. I moved out of my parents' house and in with my 26-year-old boyfriend just to get out of the house. I was working two jobs and just stopped going to school. About a month afterward, the vice principal contacted me and said she was officially withdrawing me from school so that I wouldn't be considered a dropout. This was the first time I can remember ever feeling like someone was actually watching out for me. I decided at that point I wanted to move back to Maine, started making plans to do just that. I broke up with that 26-year-old boyfriend, but met another one. He had been raised in Maine, so in spring of 1994, when I should have been graduating high school, I was moving to Maine and found out I was pregnant again. But determined not to make the same mistake yet again, I found a good doctor and a therapist and a psych nurse and a health nurse to come and visit me once a week at my house. I was so horrified by the thought of being like any of my parents that I knew I needed all the help I could possibly get. My oldest son, Jacob, was born in March of 1995. From the moment that I found out I was pregnant, I knew I needed to change my life. I wanted to be a great mom. I planned to marry Jacob's father in October of 96 and even had my sweet grandmother make me a dress. But around my son's first birthday, we had a fight and I was pushed into the wall backward and I walked away. I couldn't even imagine marrying into an abusive situation and I was afraid. So I asked him to leave and figured out life as a single parent. A few years went by and I moved back to Florida in 1997 where I had friends and family able to help me find a good job. I started feeling the pull for my life to truly be different. I started a full-time job in a factory and after a few months met the man who would become my first husband. We got to know each other at work and then started talking to each other after work. We even started going to church together. He seemed like a really nice guy. He sent me back to Maine for Christmas because I missed my grandmother. Nana told me I needed to marry him. And so in October of 1998, I did just that. But within a month, everything changed, everything. He was angry all the time and lying to me about the simplest of things. I had no idea what I had done wrong or why it was so bad all of a sudden, but it never really got any better. I had my daughter, Natalie, in November of 1999, followed by four more children over the next 10 years. I homeschooled the children, 
and worked an occasional part-time job in the evenings. As years passed, we fought more and more. My husband would throw things across the room and into walls, paying no attention to where me or the, the children were. Calm discussions turned into fights over and over again. And the fear that I lived in as a child was brought back to the surface. I sought counsel over and over with pastors, Christian counselors, and friends, but I always felt like I was the only one working to fix our marriage. I felt trapped, abandoned, and again, worthless. In 2008, after three years of working with the same marriage ministry, we decided that maybe a move and a fresh start would help. We packed up five children, a dog, a cat, and all of our stuff, and drove to Maine in the end of February, staying with a church friend that we'd met online, um, who also happened to be a homeschooling family. In November of 2008, we signed on the dotted line and bought our first home in Lisbon Falls. It was, our, it was an old house with a lot of character, and it was home. In July of 2009, we welcomed our youngest daughter, Elizabeth, who you all know, or most of you know, <laughs> into our family. What should have been a time of great joy was wrought with stress, more secrecy, and fighting. I knew something was really wrong, but I didn't know what, until one day I found pornography, yet again, on our computer. I was crushed. After six years with that marriage ministry, and still feeling like I was the only one trying, I asked my husband to leave, and shortly thereafter filed for divorce. I watched my children, each and every one of them, just blossom. The anger and the negativity that was hovering in our house for so long was gone, and they finally became happy, and it was a calm, loving place to live. I felt peace, that kids enjoyed going to 4-H and making new friends in our homeschool adventures and in our neighborhood. We started putting down roots for the first time. It was beautiful. My parents had moved up to Maine and were living with me during this time, and for the first time, I truly felt like they saw me for who I was. They seemed to respect the decisions that I was making and were very supportive, even watching the kids periodically for me while I worked. I even felt at one point that my mother was suddenly my friend. My divorce was finalized in October of 2010 and life was going really well. I was working part-time but making a full-time income, quickly moving up in my job, and I was still home enough to continue homeschooling. The holidays were lovely. A new year began with great hope for our future. And unfortunately, all of that was about to change in the most horrific way. I woke up the morning of March 4th, 2011, to a fire in the house. I was alone, a single mom of six children. I ran and got the baby and the two younger boys out of the house and tossed them over the railing down to the neighbors who had come over to help. My oldest son was trying desperately to put the fire out, but he couldn't. I turned to go back in and get the other two girls, only to be smacked in the face with black, thick smoke. I couldn't get back into them. People yelled at me to get out. The fire trucks were there now and trying to get into the front of the house where the fire was, and I couldn't get back to the girls. I ran down the stairs outside barefoot and found Bernie, the fire chief, who asked me where the, girl were, the girls were. 
frantically, I pointed to the window of their bedroom right next to the raging flames in the bathroom. And I knew right away they weren't going to make it. I stood in the driveway, freezing, waiting, until someone came and put me in the ambulance. And as the ambulance drove away, the EMT told me what I already knew. Natalie and Kelsey didn't make it. I spent two days in the hospital having my lungs washed out and recovering. I went to my parents' house afterward to the, the rest of the kids. I walked around in a fog for days. I couldn't even think straight. I talked with the funeral director and the lead pastor of our church and the Red Cross. People brought us meals and donated money and gift cards and furniture and clothes and even a storage unit. Natalie's dance school raised money and the company that I worked for did a fundraiser so that I could stay home with the kids as long as I needed to. My oldest son, Jacob, turned 16 just four days after the fire. We did our best to celebrate him, but we couldn't truly muster any happiness. Life was upside down for a long time. I was in shock for months. I started taking the older two boys to counseling, continued to homeschool, and tried to figure out how to move forward. We spent time just healing, loving on one another, accepting the help because there really wasn't any other way. We went to church after the fire. We tried. But when we would go, I could only weep. I was so stuck the second time that we went, I couldn't even go sit with everyone else. I stayed by the back doors. Someone eventually brought me and my mother a chair, and we sat right next to the doors, and I ugly cried the whole time we were there. No one came back to comfort me. No one came to sit with me. I felt totally and utterly alone, as I had so many times in my life. So I decided that if it was just me and God, I could do that without being in a church and feeling even worse. My sister, my parents, and my best friend Jackie held me together when I was sure I wouldn't make it. Then one day, I was invited to a graduation party for a relatively new friend, mind you. Um, but my mother encouraged me to go, just to get out of the house. You know, been there for too long already. <laughs> so I hung out in the room where all the kids played. If you know me well enough, you know I'm not a party person. Never have been, never will be. <laughs> the kids were about my speed, though, and I didn't have to have any real conversations, which was super helpful. <laughs> but in that room, I saw a fella He's pretty handsome, if you ask me. My first thought was, oh, he's way too young for me. Way too young. I didn't even say hello to him. I spent about 90 minutes at the party and found my friend Darcy so I could say goodbye. She walked up right up to me and pointed at him and said, you need a husband, don't you? I shot right back at her and I said, no, I don't. Especially not right now. But a couple of hours later, she texted me and asked if she, if, if she could tell him to connect with me on Facebook. That seemed safe enough. I mean, you know, I could block him if he was too weird, right? <laughs> we got to know each other and went on our first date in late May. A little over two years later, we were married. While neither one of us were even at church at this point, I was convinced that he was the right one and that God had put him in my life. I saw things in him that I had learned through that six years in that marriage ministry. I saw an unconditional love, not only for me, but for my children. 
He was patient and kind, generous and helpful, and was focused on making his life better. He also had two children of his own that I could see he worked hard day after day to take good care of. But he had come into my life at possibly the most difficult time, and we had so many challenges to face. Around this time, my biological father also found me on Facebook and became a very positive and encouraging part of my life. Chris and I married in September of 2013, and my husband knew how much it would mean to me, and so he paid for my father to fly up and be with us at the wedding. During this time, we all lived in a single wide mobile home with six children plus four cats and a dog. Talk about stressful. My children and I were still trying to adjust to our new normal after losing Natalie and Kelsey, and his two children were trying to adjust to me and four new siblings and homeschooling after being the only two kids in the house for 10 and 13 years. Some of the challenges that we faced were so difficult, I felt like giving up. Certainly, this would be easier on my own. Just months into our marriages, the challenges became so big my husband turned back to old ways of coping that were detrimental to the whole family. He lost his job and we both worried about how we were going to proceed forward. At the beginning, I didn't know exactly what had happened. I just knew something was off. But when I found out what it was, which I won't talk about here because that's really his story, I remembered a friend talking to me about Celebrate Recovery. So I talked to Chris and insisted that we start looking for a church together and more specifically, Celebrate Recovery. I started going to CR because I wanted to support my husband, not because I truly felt like I needed it. But come on, with a past like mine, who wouldn't need it? I just full-on denial. This is where Marianne comes in. <laughs> but when I went, I cried and cried and cried for months. I cried because no one loved me. I cried because I missed my life and my girls, and no one had taken care of me, and no one was there for me. And there... At Celebrate Recovery, through months of tears and worship and friendship, I started to realize that the love of God was real. It was for me, not just for all the people out there. I began to see that God cared about my life. We attended Celebrate Recovery and Pathway Vineyard in Augusta until they closed that branch of the church down in the end of 2015. We were so sad. We attended off and on in Lewiston for a while, but realized after a time that it was really too far away to be as involved as we wanted. So we spent some time floating from one church to another, trying to find one where we fit. And one weekend while, we, while Chris was working, I visited here at Faith Christian Church again, by myself with five kids in tow. I must have looked like a crazy woman. But when I walked in, Esther rocked, walked right up to me and asked me how I was doing and said she'd remembered my story from the years we years ago when we had visited once or twice. She asked me and I could tell she really cared. Wes spoke of history behind the scripture and the teenagers were intrigued and they actually listened. And then I saw the kitchen and I knew we were home. <laughs> God brought us here because I knew he knew that I needed people to actually come alongside me and help me heal my heart, to actually care. He has shown me love in so many people, joy like my heart has never really known, faithfulness 
of people coming alongside of us when we remain just an inconvenient, broken mess. Goodness, people seeing the good in me, even while I'm still so very broken. Peace in a gentle, quiet spirit. Patience in giving my husband and myself the grace to learn how to lead a ministry like Celebrate Recovery by the Spirit from within our brokenness. God continues to show me kindness in bringing new people to be a part of Celebrate Recovery and allowing us to share our lives together. You all have become a part of my forever family, and that leads me to self-control. If you, the, those of you who have been here for a while, if you remember back when we first began CR, I was desperately anxious. I would fret for hours before, during, and after CR. I wasn't good enough in my own eyes, so how could I possibly do this? But the Bible teaches us in 2 Corinthians 10.5, to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. As difficult as that is, I have learned to do that the more I do just that, the more peace I feel, the more I'm able to hear what God says about me and about those around me. The most important lesson I've learned through Celebrate Recovery is that the only opinion that matters about me is God's opinion. Not even my own opinion matters that same way. I leave you tonight with my favorite verses, which come from Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8. It goes like this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Celebrate Recovery has made it possible for me to start living in the me that God means for me to be and to continue growing together with all of you. We have a high calling, love one another, focus on the good in others, and then when that feels impossible to do, call on Jesus in every situation. Thank you for letting me share.